Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Uh, all right, Bill. Well, look, uh, welcome to the RHA podcast. Fantastic to uh, have you along today. Maybe just to begin with, why don't you tell us a bit about your current professional responsibilities? Okay, well, I'm currently the CEO of the Leukemia Foundation of Australia, yeah. and hopefully you saw the media last week. It's been a big week for the foundation, and it it's has. been a big week for, um, I guess, people living with blood cancer. Uh, the The foundation released the very first State of the Nation report into, into blood cancer in this country to coincide with... Um, Blood Cancer Awareness Month Mm -hmm. in September, Mm -hmm. Um, and we also announced with the Federal Health Minister the very first national task force Mm -hmm. into blood cancer. So um, I think this is this is a pretty significant moment for the organisation and for um, for people living with these um, these diseases in this country. It's certainly going to I think help us reform the health system. Um, improve access and equity of access mm-hmm. to uh, not just to current treatments but to information and, and those new emerging therapies that mm-hmm. we hear about. Uh, and that's going to improve survivability. I mean, the, the, the data that we've collected is pretty compelling. If we do nothing in the next 15 years, we'll end up with one diagnosis every 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can see there's a, there, there is a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the foundation has, um, uh, has put together, I think, uh, quite an important and, and transformational strategy to uh, to get to zero lives lost um, to blood cancer by 2035. Uh, I think that certainly what is achievable in the very short term is zero preventable deaths, and that's something I think we'll see within the next decade. Mm. Um, and certainly it's a very short step to zero lives lost uh, from there. So I think, yeah, really important uh, point in the, in the Foundation's history. And um, I imagine there was a massive amount of work uh, that happened prior to this announcement. You know, how long have you been, you know, working on that for? Gee, we've been building. We've been building on this for probably about the last three years. Right. Um, I guess some people could say we've been building on this for the last forty. When you look mm-hmm. at the um, the origins of the organisation, um, the the origins are really fascinating. And, I, and and certainly for me, historically looking at um, the way charities have been founded and established, obviously. Um, it's it's to address an unmet need, but it's always I'm always fascinated by how they evolve. And uh, in one of my previous roles, uh, I worked for an organisation called Bernardo's. Mm-hmm. If you know Bernardo's, yes. but uh, um, they're probably one of the largest child welfare organisations in the world. And um, they were founded by an, a doctor who an Irish doctor who was an evangelicist in in uh, in the 1800s you know so you know he saw he saw a need and uh, and, and this organization grew out of that to become one of the biggest and the best mm. um, the the leukemia foundation is very similar um, just through the vision of, of a couple of guys and, and one guy in particular um, the organization grew because they could see um, people dying needlessly from from blood cancer mm. uh, and you know, it was formed up in Queensland, so you know the Queenslanders get it right occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in 1975, they they formed the, the very first leukemia foundation. It was actually back then called the Lions Leukemia Foundation. Mm. 
uh, and it was it was formed through the Holland Park Lions Club, right? Just, you know, not, not far from here, and um, you know, back then, uh, you know, they recognised access was a big issue, uh, and set about doing things that probably today mightn't be seen as. Um, I guess the, the the most expedient way of of, of running an organisation, or perhaps the you know in terms of governance, uh, I mean they they saw that there needed to be accommodation, so they just went out and, and bought a house. Mm. You know, um, no real thinking about how that was going to evolve, or no strategy around it. Just we need accommodation. Let's go and buy a house, and mm. we'll do it up, and we'll put people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what evolved out of that was um, one of the best accommodation programs in the country. Uh, for, um, for for any health uh, concern or any disease, uh, and last year provided close to sixty thousand nights worth of accommodation right around the country. Wow. So, um, all from one little step from a, a few guys in Holland mm. Park going, let's just go and buy a house. Mm. Um, I think that's what the the thing that I love about uh, about the sector is that um, you know it's just. It's just people's passion to want to make a difference mm-hmm. that that actually can, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I think that when you look at the organisation, it was an organisation that wanted to challenge the status quo, wanted to be disruptive, um, and realised that they needed to make a really significant difference. Mm-hmm. And um, it's those values, um, the values of being bold and, and really caring deeply about what they do, um, that I think. That the organisation still still holds on to today, um, and the work that we've been doing over the last three years is really a reflection of that. Mm. Um, certainly, when we merged the organisation a couple of years ago, well, it's not 2016 now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted us to step back and and uh, and have a really hard look at the organisation mm-hmm. because this was a. Um, an enormous opportunity that was presented mm-hmm. to us. And when you say merge, you're talking about each state had their own individual entity, and you merged into one national organisation. Yeah, it was it was a quasi federated structure mm-hmm. previously. Um, there were two le- legal entities. It merged into one legal entity, mm-hmm. um, and what we did then was. Uh, did a very extensive um, piece of stakeholder consultation and research to um, to better understand what it is that the foundation can have an impact on. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the reality is organisations tend to start out being very customer centric, um, disruptive, uh, and uh, I guess uh, highly innovative because they're addressing a, a, um, an unmet need. Mm. But often over time, they become the status quo mm. and they build programs uh, um, to justify that. Uh, you know, what I wanted to make sure was, were we still relevant? Were we still meeting our mission? Mm. And, uh, and so we, we stepped back and, and asked that question. There's no doubt that we were doing good work with our, um, our existing programs, but were they enough now? Mm. And as you know, um, the health system is uh, is being disrupted uh, from all angles, whether it's it's funding or technology or regulation. Um, and so, were we were we in a position to capitalise on that, or were we going to be disrupted by it? Mm. Uh, and what we found astonishingly was that there was something like 700 unmet needs of the blood cancer community mm. that we weren't having an impact on. And if we wanted to fulfil our mission we needed to somehow be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that set us on the path to where we are now in terms of, uh, um, of the, the Blood Cancer Task Force. But it was really around developing a strategy that was 
um, not incremental but transformational Mm -hmm. um, and a strategy that was willing to challenge the status quo um, and was willing to put patients and families first. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit about the scope of the services that you're offering now. Uh, so the, the the services we offer now again they're, they're all access um, all related to, to access mm-hmm. and uh, I think the the really important thing is is that that um, access is a term that's used quite a lot uh, in the health system um, but access means different things to people at different parts of their their journey so access at diagnosis is quite different to access at treatment mm-hmm. um, and the foundation understood that. So, you know, access at diagnosis is really about access to information about your disease. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest issues that, um, that people, uh, when they're, who, whether it's a blood cancer or any disease, to be honest with you, when you're first diagnosed, is to, you want to understand what the impact of that is, is going to be on your life um, and how you, can, how you can deal with it. And often in very complex health issues, those decisions are taken out of your hands. Mm-hmm. And so the, the decisions are made by clinicians and a whole range of other people. Um, and, and that's largely because you don't have the, the, the in-depth information and mm-hmm. knowledge needed to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So the more we can inform patients about um, their disease, the more we can inform them about the, the pathways that they can take to manage their disease, to deal with their disease, the more informed they are in general, the mm. more in control they are. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest issues for anyone. Mm. Um, if you're used to being in control of your life and then all of a sudden you're thrown in the deep end with a disease that you, don't, you can't even pronounce, mm. um, you know, what do you do? Mm. And, and I imagine, uh, you know, in our parents' generation, it was doctor knows best and I won't ask too many questions, but uh, now with... Um, so much information available, people really want to have that level of information uh, to be able to take control themselves. Oh, absolutely. Look, look the, uh, the reality is, um, you know, the, the, the democratisation of information has mm. meant that everyone wants to be an expert now, don't they? Or everyone <laughs> thinks that they're an expert. Sure. Um, that's, a, that's, there's a, there's a, that's a double-edged sword because you know, on one hand, there's huge amounts of information out there for us to... Um, uh, to trawl through um, the problem is what's real mm. what's right and what's fake and mm. we all know about fake news mm. <laughs> um, but that's one of the biggest problems mm. uh, and I think with with, um, with health um, that's that's more the case uh, with cancer in particular um, we've all heard the, the old stories about there's a cure but they don't want to tell us because you know pharma and government right. government uh, have a conspiracy around this um, or that you know all you need to do is um, uh, make your uh, make your body more or less uh, pH neutral yeah. and you know um, there's all of those mm. uh, those old wise tales the, the reality is cancer is a very complex disease mm-hmm. and blood cancer in particular is well, over 140 different different disease diseases on their own, mm-hmm. um, and so you can understand the the complexity of trying to cure or even treat blood mm. cancer. Um, but what we want to do is is make sure that people are well informed. Because you're absolutely right. Years ago, um, we would we would just go, yep, that's what the doctor says, so that's what I'm going to do. And largely, that's still the case. Mm. You know, when I speak to clinicians, a lot of them will say to me, well, you know, I've got the top 10% of, of my patients will do more than I, 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 I tell them. They will go out and research absolutely everything they can find and they will bring stuff back to me and say, can I do this, this, this and this? Mm. I've also got the bottom 10% of patients 
who will do absolutely nothing because they're convinced they're going to die. Mm. So they won't even do what I tell them to do because they just think, oh, uh, yeah, cancer is a death sentence. Yeah. But then there's the 80% in the middle who will do no more or no less than what, it, what I tell them. So I've got to be really careful mm. about what I tell them. And I think, you know, clinicians are very mindful of that. Um, and, and a lot of the time they don't want to uh, give patients false hope. Mm-hmm. They don't want to give them information that might mislead them. Um, but, but by the same token, I think that um, for every patient I've ever spoken to, and I think I'm the same, is that I want to know. I just want to know what my options are. Even mm. if they're bad options, mm. I want to know what they are, and I want to feel that I'm contributing mm-hmm. to the decisions about that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's really important that we do give mm. people that, that information. And so you're saying at the diagnosis point, access is referring to access to quality information. Absolutely. And then as they progress... How does that change? Again, it depends on your disease. So, um, uh, but that will really change around access to the right therapy and the right treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reality is, and our report tells us this, is that um, uh, there are equity issues around that. So, access is not the same for everyone, mm-hmm. and uh, and whether that's uh, you know um, country to city or whether that's across state borders equity of access doesn't fully exist mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in 2019 it should mm-hmm. and certainly in the future it has to mm-hmm. uh, what uh, what we know now is that if we can simply improve consistency of treatment um, and that is by enabling uh, and ensuring that people get access to what we know is best practice now and also consistency of access to uh, already funded therapies. Mm-hmm. So this isn't anything new that happens to be coming down the pipeline. This is stuff that's already on the PBS, that's, that government is already funding. If we improve equity of access with those two things alone, we can improve survivability for blood cancer by 13%. Now, over the next 15 years, that equates to the saving of 22,000 lives. Mm. Now, that's a very compelling argument for mm-hmm. anyone. Um, so ensuring that we can um, support patients to get access at treatment is critical. And the Foundation's been doing that for, for many, many years. Uh, you know, I spoke to you about uh, accommodation uh, just, mm-hmm. just before. Um, accommodation is simply an access issue. Mm-hmm. So if you're a regional or rural patient and you're having to travel many hundreds of kilometres to get access to the best treatment and the best, uh, the best uh, clinicians... Um, because blood cancer can be um, such an aggressive disease, uh, you might have 24 hours to pack your bag and be in Brisbane mm. or Sydney or Melbourne um, without without knowing anyone, without mm. knowing where you're staying, um, without really knowing what the future holds for you, how long you're going to be treated. This could be you, it could be your child. Um, it, you know, so uh, that's an incredibly stressful time. Mm. Um, you know, when I, when I've heard. Uh, uh, people that have been engaged with the foundation for many years talk about this. You know, there there are, I hear many stories about the early years in the foundation when people were living in cars out the front of hospitals, mm. so their children or their or, or their partner could get treatment. You know, that's not how you want to ever mm. see the, the health system being delivered. So um, accommodation is a critical element of access, just like transport and just like support. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the foundation has always been focused on that. But what we know now is that we need to do more than that. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, let's come back and talk more about Leukemia Foundation Australia in a bit. But uh, I'm interested in hearing your story. My story. So, why don't um, uh, you take us back to where it all began? You know, where were you born, and you know, what was early life like? Brothers, sisters, mum, dad, that stuff. Okay. Well, I think I was born in Sydney. Um, I've got one brother. Uh, we come from a very, I think, a very average middle class family. Mm -hmm. Lived in the burbs in Sydney. Um, I went to uh, went to a Catholic school mm -hmm. um, and did all the things that you normally do in Catholic school. Part, part of that's probably why I'm doing the job that I'm doing now. Yeah, uh, you know that um, that that sense of community and that sense of giving um, is something that's instilled in you in um, in school at at, uh, um, at at a young age. Your parents quite active in the church? No, they weren't actually, right. um, which is quite surprising, but um, they made us go to church. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, certainly, certainly in the early years anyway. But, right. um, uh, but as I said, you know, I went to, um, I went to a Catholic school mm -hmm. and, you know, so you did things like uh, you volunteered and you raised mm -hmm. money for, mm -hmm. for the missions and uh, you went and did wheel, Meals on Wheels and all those sorts of things. Sure. So, so, you know, um, it was instilled in you that giving, giving back to the community mm -hmm. was an important thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and you know having a sense of community and and a pride in your community was, mm -hmm. was something that was instilled in me at a very young mm -hmm. age. What sort of work did your parents do? Uh, my my mum was an accountant. My dad was uh, an electronic engineer. Okay. So um, uh, I think my dad was a bit of a lefty, to be honest right. with you. Yeah. Uh, so you know I um, when I and ultimately went to university, I went uh, I went and well. I studied. Uh, I studied sociology first, and moved uh -huh. on to politics. What did you want to do when you were younger? You know, what do I want to do when I grow up? Oh, okay. Well, when I, um, I either wanted to uh, when, when I was younger, there was lots, lots of different things, mm -hmm. but. Um, Either the head of the UN or a Formula One driver, and, <laughs> and uh, why not I, do both? Yeah, <laughs> mm. but uh, none of that, none of that seemed to eventuate. Right. But uh, and did you have, um, you know, uh, weekend jobs as a kid? You know, any pocket yeah, money? Yeah, no, I did, I did. Um, uh, certainly, my um, my grandparents had a property. Yeah. Uh, out at Dural in Sydney, so they had they had acreage out there. Used to love as a kid going out, and uh, we had we had lots of animals when I was uh, okay. when I was younger. So. Um, I would get pocket money from feeding the animals. Right. Um, we had, uh, and, and certainly um, my grandfather got us into um, making sure that we had, I guess, a, a sense of understanding about rural life, mm -hmm. even though they were only semi-rural. Um, he uh, he bought us our first uh, first cattle. My brother and I we both had owned cattle. Right. Uh, and um, so we and we were responsible for. Um, uh, looking after them and then selling them and 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 you know the. the so what did you think of the kid selling Daisy to the, uh, you know the uh, meat processing company? Uh, well, I became a vegetarian for about <laughs> six months, right. but, um, uh, but funnily enough, my uh, my grandmother. Uh, never liked. We, we were all meat eaters, yeah. But my grandmother would never eat meat that came from our property. Which oh, was right. Kind of, kind of funny, but um, uh, but it did look. You know, mm. um, d again, doing that sort of stuff instilled a work ethic in me. Sure, definitely. Um, and uh, we had horses, and so you know, like I used to ride a lot uh, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. I did all the gym carnas okay. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but again, it was instilled in me: if it's your horse, you look after mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. um, if you want a new saddle, you buy it. Right. <laughs> you know those sorts of sure. things. So um, we did have to work. My brother and I, um, we did have to work for for our pocket money. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly, as we got older, we were encouraged to go and get jobs early. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's not to say that we ever wanted for anything. I don't ever remember a time when my brother and I were ever were ever missed out on anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and, and when you reflect on that, you know that mum and dad must have foregone other things mm-hmm. to make sure that we had our yeah. new bike or new skateboard or mm-hmm. new whatever. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I... Um, uh, when I was old enough, I, I had a job uh, in uh, in a cake shop actually, okay. and because uh, my my grandfather was a baker, mm. um, and so I had a job in a cake shop. And then uh, when I went to university, I started uh, working with um, with uh, kids who were disadvantaged, uh-huh. and uh, I used to do um, the sport and rec holiday camps, mm-hmm. and uh, and worked with disabled kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did. I did quite a bit of that sort of mm. stuff early on. And, uh, and why? Why sociology? Um, at the beginning, I really just wanted to understand what the world meant. You know, right. um, it was. A, you know, it, the, the, you, I was always, even even as a young kid, I I, um, I was always questioning things. Mm-hmm. And and so when I got to university, I wanted to understand my place in the world a bit mm-hmm. more. And I thought that that was a good place to start. Um, uh, I ended up actually. Uh, um, as I said, moving from sociology to politics and philosophy, mm-hmm. and that um, that quenched my my thirst for for understanding of the world. Right. Um, but it also then, uh, I guess, drove my desire to 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 do something constructive in mm-hmm. the world. So, mm-hmm. um, and certainly when I was working with those those disadvantaged and disabled kids, I realised that. Uh, there, there was considerable inequity in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, if you want, as I'll, as Gandhi said, if you want to, you know, you got to be the change you want to see. Yeah. Um, so I always looked for ways in which mm-hmm. I could contribute somehow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, what happened after you finished your degree? Uh, like all, um, uh, I guess, like all students of politics, uh, I went overseas. Right. So I uh, went and did the backpacking thing for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I probably would have been... I, I was only planning on going for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, loved it. And where did you go? The UK? Uh, UK, well, I, pretty much everywhere but Eastern Europe. Because right. uh, uh, it was still pretty hard to get a visa back then mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe. But um, so uh, started off in the States briefly, um, then went across to the UK and Europe. I worked in Europe, uh, worked in the UK for a while. Were you um, the typical Aussie... Lives in a house with Aussies, works with Aussies, drinks with drinks with Aussies. Or uh, no, no, a bit more adventurous. So, no, it's a little bit more adventurous. Uh-huh. Um, the first place, um, the, the first place I lived in was a, a shoebox um, on Bayswater Road, right, uh, right across the road from uh, uh, Kensington Palace. Okay. Um, it, you, it, beautiful place, mm-hmm. but you couldn't swing a dead cat. The whole the whole um, apartment was probably not as big as my office. Right. Um, but uh, access to everything was mm-hmm. was, was amazing. Um, I even lived up in the Midlands in mm-hmm. uh, uh, Solihull, okay. uh, just outside of Birmingham. Uh, I wanted to immerse myself in, uh, in in the local community and meet local people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, didn't hang out with Aussies. I right. was hanging out with Poms. Uh-huh. Um, and then um, uh, bought a combi van and drove around Europe. Nice. And uh, and that like you know that again um, opened up my eyes mm-hmm. to a lot of things. Um, you know, especially issues of, I guess, um, 
the, the institutionalized you know racism that we mm-hmm. see now mm-hmm. um, and sexism that we see you know we're often you know we're as a community we're quite harsh on ourselves about mm. some of those things but uh, as you travel around the world you see that actually all communities really struggle with mm. you know with with that um and i've seen the number of homeless people in in pretty much every city that i went to mm. uh you know demonstrated that you know australia isn't too bad a place to live mm-hmm. um but we can do better mm-hmm. yeah. so you're away for a couple of years uh, i was away for a year right uh and the only reason i came back is that i got accepted to do my master's okay so uh i tried to defer and mm-hmm. um uh, deferred for a little while and then and then mm-hmm. came back. I did my masters, mm-hmm. uh, went back overseas again. Right. Um, came back, uh, started a PhD, and then realised that um, in my mid twenties I was um, still a poor student, mm-hmm. and maybe I needed to get a proper job. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so what was that? Um, actually, uh, it was um, I started to work for Bernardo's. Right. So um, again, funny story. Uh, I thought they were looking for a lobbyist. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'd studied politics. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind uh, doing some lobbying for them. And uh, I knew because I'd been uh, living in the UK, I knew the brand. I knew what good work they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went along. And uh, uh, it was the, probably the strangest interview I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, they presented me with a game, like a board game, like right. Monopoly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about it was a child protect it was a, a game about child protection. It's quite weird. Someone I don't know who invented it, but um, they said, uh, "Here's the here's this game. We're going to leave the room for ten minutes. When we come back, we want us uh, we want you to sell the game to us." Okay. And I went, oh, okay. I, I thought that's a bit weird. So I'm looking <laughs> at it. So I'm looking at the instructions. The instructions are like twenty pages long. Right. And I'm thinking, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to figure this out. Mm. And then I was looking at the box, and I noticed in the corner. Um, you know, but I can't remember what it was, like 10 cents of um, the proceeds of this uh, um, this game will go to Bernardo's. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, so what they really want me to do is sell them that. Mm. So um, so when I came back in, they came back in, I said, look, you guys don't really care about the game. You care about the fact that this is supporting the organisation, so this is why you should buy the game. And um, I didn't know whether I'd, not, you know, uh, done well or not mm. um, I, I didn't so that was it that was your whole pitch that was it <laughs> um, so well a little bit more than that right. but, um, but that, but in essence I was selling them the game I was selling right. them the, the, the I guess I was selling them the contribution mm-hmm. to the charity mm-hmm. so um, I, I didn't really think I just thought oh that's a really weird interview so I just went shopping in town I thought oh I'm never going to get this uh, right. uh, get this job because it's not what because they said you'd be working in the marketing department mm. I said you guys haven't seen my CV have you mm. I don't have any marketing background mm. I said oh it's alright you're here now so I'll like, we'll have that interview so I thought look I don't have a marketing background I didn't talk to them about marketing mm-hmm. I talked to them about selling a game to them mm-hmm. so I'm pretty sure I didn't get the job mm-hmm. so I went shopping in town I got home there's a message on my, uh, my answering machine because back then answering yeah, machines yeah. Um, oh you've got the job do you want to right. come in so when I spoke to them about about it they said you were the only person mm. that picked up on the fact that mm. that's what it was and they said that everyone else tried to explain the game to us mm. um, and so I started working for them uh, and I guess what was really interesting was that this is at the point when cause-related marketing started to come mm-hmm. to the fore you know mm-hmm. in the ni- in the late 90s mm-hmm. And um, I, that sort of resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And because I started to, I'd already had, I guess I'd 
had a commercial mind. So what happened, I mean, you had an anticipation it was going to be a lobbying job. Yeah. And then you got in there, and was there any lobbying component to it at all? Not to start with. Okay, right. Not to start with. Um, but uh, the reality was they didn't really know what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, they were an organisation that was, you know, was trying to grow in Australia. Um, they have really been just a branch of the UK organisation. Mm-hmm. The UK organisation is massive. You know, I think it's one of the top five charities. It's a, you know, it's a, a multi-million pound organisation. Mm-hmm. And they just started doing cause-related marketing over there. They'd seen it, brought it to Australia and gone, oh, we need to do this, but right. they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I just thought, oh, this is just, you know, it fascinated me. So I thought, here's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I, I'm so I ran with it. Um, the thing for me was that I thought it was a great opportunity to blend, um, you know, the philanthropy with reality. Yep. You know, um, the thing about philanthropy is that it's inherently unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you make philanthropy sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you embed it. Uh, and and you find sustainable income streams. Mm. And so that's what I said about doing uh, with, with Bernardo's. And so how long were you with them for? Uh, a long time, uh, well over a decade. Wow, okay. uh, So I worked in Australia and in the UK for mm. them. Um, and really I built their, uh, their capabilities around... Um, their, uh, their their social responsibility program, mm-hmm. um, and as I said, you know, I, I was fortunate that I got in at the, the ground level when corporate social responsibility was still a theory, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, I built their capability um, here and mm-hmm. in the UK. Okay, and um, if you even if you have a look today at some of the partnerships that Bernardo's have now well over a decade after I left, mm. uh, some of them are still the, 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 the partnerships that I built. Mm, um, but it's, I think it, the, the thing that fascinates me about corporate responsibility is that whole um, shared value opportunity mm. where business can contribute to the community. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, there's a very clear mandate there. Uh, you know, as a corporate citizen, you have obligations. Mm. Um, how do you help them fulfil those obligations mm-hmm. in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's I guess that largely led me to working for the foundation. You know, mm-hmm. it was that um, it was the the programs that I developed that um, caught their eye. So uh, um, just before we get to that, uh, I mean, to take a little bit of a segue, mm-hmm. I'm on the uh, uh, the philanthropy um, advisory board for the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. Oh yeah. And uh, and when I joined that board, I thought. I think I know about this philanthropy business, but then I actually went and read a few books about it. And um, to the outsider, it seems pretty straightforward. You find people with deep pockets, you get them to give you money. But um, there is um, much, it's a very complex place to, um, uh, to navigate through in order to, essentially, you're building a business case for why um, a philanthropist, whether it's... Um, uh, a high net worth individual, or um, you know, why you are essentially a good investment opportunity for them. They're not that they're expecting to get money back, but they want to know that that money is being well utilised and is actually delivering good outcomes. Oh, absolutely! It's all about impact. Mm. It's all about impact and outcomes. But look, it's it's a um, it, it really is an interesting space, and it's evolving, and it's evolved considerably in the last decade. But I think that we still have a very antiquated view of philanthropy and charity mm. in general. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think, again, coming from a Catholic background, um, we have a very, we still have a very Christian view of charity and mm-hmm. philanthropy. And, and the, the Christian view of charity is about obligation, 
um, and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that when you translate it, um, not everyone is in the position to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is in a position to give. And so when you see it like you see it as, as almost an obligation and a burden rather than a benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not. Um, the, the thing is, that, and I think that that's held us back in terms of understanding the impact of NGOs. Mm. You know, what charity was 100 years ago is not what charity is today. Mm-hmm. And charity now is essentially a much more effective arm of government to deliver a whole range of, um, of benefits to the community that government doesn't have the ability to do mm-hmm. that creates a much more civil society. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's social, whether that's health, whether that's cultural, like the orchestra... Um, uh, the reality is those things need to be provided to a community. Um, how do you pay for them? Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a free lunch, is mm. there? So you've got to pay for it somehow. Um, but government has never demonstrated its uh, effectiveness in delivering services. Mm. It's very good at regulating. It's very good at um, uh, at legislating, sometimes. Mm. <laughs> um but it's not very good at service delivery. It can become incredibly bureaucratic and inefficient. Mm. So the charitable sector is a much smarter way of delivering those services. It's much more efficient. It can mm-hmm. be much more effective. Um, but in order to do that, you have to understand that um, it's not about how little you spend on it. Mm. It's about how well you spend on it. Mm. Um, and if you, you see most of the reports on charity now being about the cost of fundraising or the cost of administration. Mm. I don't care about that. What I care about is the impact that you're delivering. What's mm. the outcome that you're delivering? Um, because even when you look at that, most at most charities where you know the the cost of fundraising um, is about thirty percent on average, cost of administration is about ten percent on average. Um, show me a company that can deliver a seventy percent profit in every campaign it runs. Mm. I don't know any. Mm. So for any charity that can operate where it's only spending 30% of its money on, on marketing and, um, uh, and, and business development, um, I think that's a pretty good outcome. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, I'm the convener of the not-for-profit special interest group at the Brisbane Club, and, uh, you know, the talk is regularly around how the title of not-for-profit, you know, is really being a part of this antiquated sort of viewpoint and, and the move towards being considered as profit for purpose Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is not-for-profits need to make profit in order to deliver the services that they have to deliver. So um, I think it's a very changing space with NDIS and a lot of the other um, uh, you know, challenging but also opportunities for organisations that are in that market now. It, it does create um, quite a flashpoint in terms of changing this perception. Oh, absolutely. This is a this is a really important uh, period for for the not for profit sector, and I think that we need to absolutely get it right in terms of governance and um, and in terms of service delivery. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, unfortunately we're probably still not quite there in terms of mm. of, of, of of both of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we shouldn't be trying to look at charities as just an arm of business, um, because you know the the stuff that you see um, even with the ACNC, with the AICD, uh, within corporations law, within the tax department, um, I don't think we we we're 
um, fully cognizant of, of how to mm. build the sector appropriately, mm. how we can build collaboration, in not, not competition. Um, because a lot of the stuff that we see in the commercial world is actually counterintuitive in, mm. in, the, in the charitable world. Um, so you don't want organisations competing. You don't want organisations perishing um, because they haven't been able to raise money but they've got a good program. Um, you do want to see greater collaboration. You do want to see mergers and acquisitions. You do want to see um, uh, organisations thinking more about the impact that they create than about their, uh, the amount of money that they spend on mm. fundraising. That's mm. not to say that they shouldn't be mindful of that, but it, that should not be our measure of success. Mm, mm. Fair enough. So let's come back to your career then. Yep. So um, Bernardos, yep. what happened after that? Um, well, what happened after Bernardos? I went and did some consultancy work for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, back in Australia? Yeah, in Australia. So yeah. um, again, because of the, this emerging space, I'd, um, I'd started to see that there was a little bit of a niche working with... Um, I guess, uh, advisories mm-hmm. um, like PR firms mm-hmm. um, that were working with their clients to develop social impact programs or corporate responsibility programs but really didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so they were actually coming to the charities and saying, oh, hey, we've got a client and they want to do this, come up with an idea mm-hmm. rather than you know, being a little bit more proactive about it and going, okay, well, let's, let's, let's look around at what organisations fit um, our um, our client. Let's look what our client has to offer. Let's look what that charity has to offer. Let's build something bespoke. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I kind of saw that there was a niche there, um, and started doing a little bit of work um, work in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, adv- basically providing an advisory around mm-hmm. how you can construct uh, good corporate responsibility programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, like some of the programs I developed won some awards, so they must have been okay. Right. Um, and uh, so I think um, I think that was, again, an interesting space for me. Mm-hmm. And it was where I actually saw my future, to be honest. I thought that I was simply going to uh, end up working in, in a, you know, a large PR firm or, or, mm-hmm. or, or corporate communications firm, um, uh, working around... Uh, corporate responsibility and shared value and building those programs for companies that didn't have the, the capabilities themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got tapped on the shoulder to go and join the Leukemia Foundation. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so that was in Sydney still? No. Um, well, I, I was in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and to be honest with you, I'd actually um, been speaking to um, a headhunter about... Uh, another role, mm-hmm. and uh, luckily I never got that role because it was with um, a um, uh, a financial services firm that didn't last through the GFC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so probably lucky I didn't get that. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, he sort of uh, you know came back to me and said, um, "What about uh, what about coming and, and um, looking at this organisation uh, and, and interviewing for them. And I said, look, what, send me the information. And he goes, oh, they're based in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Mate, I don't want to go to Queensland. Right. No, no, forget that. Your belly something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so I said, no, no, I don't want to go. He goes, look, I really think this is something you should consider. Mm-hmm. Just go and talk to them. Mm-hmm. So they flew me up. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what it's like when you're not thinking that you've really got 
an opportunity mm. at all. And I was thinking, look, I'll do this guy a favour because hopefully then he'll remember me for something yeah, else. Yeah, it's practice uh, for a proper yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, So I sat down and chatted to them and I was really honest with them. I said, mm. well, look, I know your organisation. Here's what I think of it. Mm. Um, here's what I think is good about it and here's what's not so good about mm. it. Um, and so thanks for, your, thanks for your time. See you right. later. Flew back to Sydney and thought, didn't think anything of it. Um, two days later, I got a phone call saying... Um, uh, they want to come down and uh, and meet with you again. Mm-hmm. So they flew down to Sydney and I had another frank discussion mm-hmm. with them and they offered me the job. Mm-hmm. Now, I kind of thought, well, it's not often people ask you to be the CEO of anything. Mm. And so I thought, why not? Sure. Why not? What, yeah. what, what harm could it do? <laughs> Let's go to Brisbane and uh, hang out with the, the hillbillies. And, That's right. That's uh, right. And so what was the mandate at that time? Bill, welcome to the organisation. You know, this is a, this sort of the critical um, outcomes we need you to deliver for us. Well, I think, again, um, it was interesting because Queensland, uh, and this was the structure of the organisation at the time, Queensland had formed the foundation mm-hmm. but sat separately uh, on its own. Mm-hmm. It was a separate legal entity. Um, it, was, it had more money, more resources, more of everything. Mm-hmm. But... Um, to the outside world, the Leukemia Foundation was one organisation mm-hmm. uh, and had one mission, one everything. Um, as much as the organisation tried to um, play well together, quasi-federated structures, n- n- in my view, never work mm. particularly well. There's always um, strategic and operational tension. Mm-hmm. And um, when you have one brand... Uh, and you don't have consistency mm. and you don't have unity, then the biggest risk to your brand and to your organisation is actually yourself. Mm. Uh, and I recognised that pretty early on when I joined the organisation. That wasn't something that they really wanted to hear initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it, it was um, not just parochialism. Mm. I think it was a lot of historical baggage and politics. Um, and it took a long time to unpack that. But in my view, um, the organisation had a great mission. Um, there was huge opportunity and, and untapped potential that, it, that, that, you know, that they hadn't even realised. And um, I thought that uh, I've never been the kind of guy who takes the easy, easy road. And so I thought if I'm going to do this, then we need to do this in a way that is going to... Um, enable this organisation to have the impact that it, that it wants to have and that and it deserves to have. Mm. Um, and when I saw the and I met the people in the organisation and the patients that we worked with, I realised that that um, I, I absolutely had to do more. There's nothing worse than walking into a hospital um, and meeting uh, um, someone who is dying of, of cancer mm. um, and then realising that you can't help them. Mm. So how could we do that? Mm. And when you look at what we've done um, since that, um, we've merged the organisation, we've, we've created a new strategy, we've restructured the business, we've engaged with government, we've created the first, um, the first report on blood cancer and the first task force on blood cancer mm-hmm. that is going to reform the health system around access. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are all really imp- important milestones mm. for the organisation. Mm. But none of that could have happened unless we, at the, at the very beginning, went, we've got to change. Mm. And, you know, it was your first CEO gig. And so when you uh, were offered the role, did you have some introspection and say, 
you know, I'm good at these things, I'm not as good or less experienced at those things. What, what do I need to do to ensure that I've got the full suite of capability as a CEO? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, uh, to be perfectly frank with you, I was shitting myself. Yeah, <laughs> I'm um, sure. uh, because I thought, here's a great opportunity. I don't want to be the guy that screws it up. Yeah. And, um, and I've said this many a time to our staff mm. um, and to some of our stakeholders. Um, I... Uh, I've got a vision for the organisation, mm-hmm. and you can see you can see what that is now. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to be the guy that stuffs it up for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to make sure that we realise the potential of this organisation, and we ensure that we have um, the, the the greatest impact that we can have for people living with blood cancer. And I don't want to mess it up. So mm-hmm. I've always been very mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I said earlier, I've always had a very inquisitive mind. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whether that was formally or informally, and um, I've always looked at, uh, you know, going back and improving my knowledge and skills mm-hmm. and continuing to do that. Like, before I started at the foundation, um, I couldn't tell you what a genome was. Right. I didn't know what T cells did. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't tell you what a TKI inhibitor was. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't, pro- you know, pronounce uh, ibrutinib. I didn't know the, the difference between uh, desatinib and amatinib. Um, I wasn't very good at science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I can tell you all of that now, right? Um, because it's important to know that oh, in gosh. this role. Yeah. Um, so it was funny, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, are you a doctor? Right. Like, no, no. They said, well, you sound like one. Said, right. Mate, you've got to sound like one if, you can, if you're going to talk to doctors. But surely that's true, you know, if you're the CEO of a, you know, a casino or a CEO of a, uh, you know, a manufacturing facility, you, you, you get to know the... The vernacular and yeah, the, true. That's yeah, very yeah. true. That's very true. But um, I bet I think I guess the point was um, I've made it my job mm. to understand this stuff mm-hmm. um, because we are not just an accommodation service. Mm-hmm. We are not just a support service, mm-hmm. and um, we are an organisation that is transforming landscape mm-hmm. for blood cancer. Def- and and so if you looked at the organisation when you joined to now. Um, how's it grown in terms of headcount and, you know, what's been some of the, you know, the significant growth as a, a business as such? Oh, uh, I think last year we had um, a net five million increase in fundraising. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that tells you that we're on the right path. Sure. Uh, so um, I think we have something combined now of 80 to $90 million worth of assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, um, a growth trajectory where we expect to go from about... Uh, 30 million to 50 million uh, within five years, mm-hmm. um, and we're, we're well on that on that path. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reality is, if you want to grow the business, you've got to grow the purpose first. Mm-hmm. So you've got to give people a reason to engage with your organisation. Mm-hmm. What we've done is um, delivered a ve- very compelling reason to support our organisation, mm-hmm. and that's why they're doing it. We've made the organisation more customer-centric, uh, and we've focused on um, on our stakeholders. Mm. By focusing on our stakeholders and being relevant to them, um, we've we've been more successful at everything else. Mm-hmm. And coming back to one of the points that you made very early, um, the goal is that there will be no blood cancer. Was it by 20, 2035. 2035. So how did you, you come up with that date? Uh, how did we come up with that date? There was a few reasons. One um, is... Uh, you know that if you want to create change, um, it, it takes time. Mm-hmm. But 
I didn't want us to be an organisation where this was just seen as a marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want it to be a goal that was so easy to meet that um, people didn't think it was serious mm-hmm. or it was so long into the future that people just got tired of it. Mm. Um, the reality is when you speak to um, people in this space, and you've probably spoken to people um, you know, about cancer in general, you hear all the time, I wish there was a, a you know a cure. Mm. I wish one day mm. this you know people didn't die from this disease. I wish one day this. Well, when's one day? Mm. When, when's that going to be? Mm. So we wanted something that was that was clearly definable and measurable. Mm. And I wanted that one day to start as soon as possible. Mm. Um, you know, if you want to create real change within government, you know it has to happen over about three three to four election cycles. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen over one. Mm. Um, and uh, what we do know is that. Um, I think that the the, the kind of uh, change that we're seeing in the health system right now uh, with things like uh, genomics, with immunotherapy, mm-hmm. um, those things are going to dramatically change the landscape. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is change the regulatory system to enable us to get benefit from those um, sooner. And uh, and we thought that uh, you know 15 years was a reasonable a reasonable time frame to make that happen, uh, and and as I said to you earlier, I think that certainly zero preventable deaths will occur, um, you know, in the not too distant future mm-hmm. if we can create that reform. Mm-hmm. Without that reform, nothing is going to change. Mm-hmm. Although I, I imagine when you're setting those type of goals, you don't do it in Australia in isolation from the world, because I imagine that. There'd be a lot of you know research happening in the states and in Europe and so on. How much um, cross pollinization of ideas and strategies and um, so on do you have with your counterparts throughout the world? Well, um, interestingly, our counterparts around the world have seen us as incredibly ambitious. Right. So um, they're probably not being as adventurous as we are, mm-hmm. um, but we have reached out to them and we have and we are working with them because we realise that this needs to be a much more collaborative mm. um, effort. Uh, the the reality is each each country's regulatory system needs to be addressed separately, but those advances in research and technology are happening globally, mm-hmm. and so it is around an access um, uh, an access issue mm-hmm. about how you can bring those into this country, mm. and that's one of the things that we want to um, we we want to fast track and ensure that reform is put in place to enable access uh, for things like you know genomic screening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, things like immunotherapy and some of those new and emerging therapies that are that we know are coming uh, coming down the pipeline, that those are those are accessed by patients through the PBS much much sooner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's about creating a, a, a framework for that to happen. Mm. I'm always fascinated when about the sort of the the science fiction of medical technology, and uh, uh, I've uh, listened to podcasts and read things and so on where they've said the person has already been born who will live to be a 1,000 years old uh, because each major step change um, will enable, you know, new technologies and, I mean, the, just the things that have um, become uh, the new science of medicine in the last few years are so incredible. I mean, do you, do you sort of share these kind of visions? Or do you engage oh, much with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I, I read widely on all of the research that's been conducted right mm. now um, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that there's research taking place right now around um, being able to identify leukemia in unborn children. Mm-hmm. So, being able to discover that a child will will have 
um, the predisposition to leukemia in utero. Mm. That's crazy, you know, like, you mm. know, like for, for us to think that you can do that now. Mm. Um, that, you know, when you look at immunotherapy, the fact that you can modify your own T-cells to fight cancer, to have your body, your own body fight the cancer, mm. that 10 years ago was science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but where, you know, where we're heading now is not just with that. Um, you know, the use of AI in healthcare mm. and the use of data in healthcare is what's really going to be, I think, the, um, the next step change. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create a, a, a completely new horizon for us in terms of um, predicting and treating uh, many, many diseases. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, you can really get caught in that rabbit hole of, uh, of following these paths and learning about some of the stuff that they talk about, it seems so extreme, you know, downloading your consciousness into the cloud and living in cyberspace <laughs> and so on. But I, I think it's, you know, it is a, it's definitely a brave new world, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. And look, I think the thing for us is that I don't, um, I don't know which one of those new, uh, those new discoveries is really going to have the impact. Mm. Um, but what I do know is that unless we can create a system that enables faster and more equitable access to mm. it when it comes, mm. um, then there's no point in uh, in us even so, sort of talking about it. Mm. So, um, you know, the the frustrating thing for me is that when you listen to the media talk about a new discovery, and they say, oh, here's a new discovery, it's probably going to lead to a, or will lead to a cure. Mm-hmm. Um, the moment you hear that, you know, add 10 years minimum right. before it gets to the patient. Yeah. How do you speed that up? Mm. Because as I've just pointed out, in the next decade... Um, we're going to see diagnoses more than double in this country. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see uh, we're, us going from one diagnosis every 36 minutes to one diagnosis every 15 minutes mm. if we don't do anything. So the cost of treating blood cancer is going to rise from about $3.5 billion to about $10.5 billion mm. without any discernible improvement mm. in, in, in outcomes for patients. So that's a huge amount of money that the community is investing. Mm. How can you make that, that investment have greater impact? Mm-hmm improve equity of access Mm -hmm. and so um uh bringing it back to your career now so uh it's now um, nearly the end of 2019 this year has flown by sure when when you look to the future what are the things that you're excited about for yourself professionally uh i think in certainly in the short term it really is how we can uh, drive the, the the blood cancer task force mm-hmm. and how we can implement the mm-hmm. the action plan that is um, going to come out of that task force. I think that what we're going to see is a number of opportunities for reform um, within the health system. The great thing is that the access issues that we're talking about um, can be replicated right across the health system. So if I can help improve access uh, for uh, blood cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I'm improving access for all patients, mm-hmm. uh, for all cancer patients, all p- people with any any difficult disease. Um, I think that's a really important thing mm-hmm. to to get right. So I'm very keen to to see that come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, well, well, let's let's see what the next challenge <laughs> is. But for me, it really is about how I, you know I, I want to make a difference. I know that's that's a, often a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but for me, it's important that I contribute to my community. And, well, it sounds as though you've you've done a fantastic yeah. job so far. We've talked a lot about Bill, the professional. What is what's Bill the, when he's not at work all about? When he's not at work, well, look, we're like sitting we're sitting in Queensland, so I better not talk about the Waratahs. <laughs> um, but no, look, I, you know, I love to go. Um, I love to go and watch um, watch rugby, or, yeah. or, or you know. Mm. Um, 
uh, played when I was at uni. Mm-hmm. So um, always fascinated to um, to get to go and watch watch a game uh, in Sydney. I just live around the corner from Sydney Uni, so always pop down and watch the guys play when I can. Yeah, um, I've always loved sport, so mm-hmm. I play as much sport as as I can. Mm-hmm. The problem these days is that I don't really get the time, so yeah, I travel sure. quite a bit. Yeah, uh, so I really travel don't get, with work for with work. Yeah, yeah. oh, if it was traveling uh, for uh, traveling for leisure, it'd be great. And, and please don't get me started on the on the um, the idiosyncrasies of traveling, uh, traveling for work versus right. uh, uh, versus leisure. Uh, you're probably a big traveler too, and you know uh, you can always uh, pick the seasoned traveler uh, in the queue, uh, either at the security screen yeah. or getting on and off the plane. Yeah, for sure. So, where's your next holiday? Next holiday? Um, well, hopefully. Um, uh, I'm heading off to Ash this year, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the the big hematology conference in the US. Okay. So um, uh, hopefully I'll take a few days off uh, mm-hmm. over there and catch up with some friends who who have uh, who I know are in the states, um, and we'll we'll see what happens after that. Excellent. And before we finish it off, I just have to end with one thing. Now, because this is audio and not visual, um, you have to take my word for it. Bill, you're one of the best-dressed business people in Brisbane. <laughs> so, like, a very dapper in a beautiful suit with a pocket handkerchief. And Thanks, so, mate. Well, so I've got to compete with guys like you, don't me, I? <laughs> I, I, I? I've been one of the biggest slobs in Brisbane. Um, you know, what's, uh, tell, what, tell us about that. Uh, about Well, I think it was probably uh, my time living in the UK. Right. Uh, you know, the... Um, I must admit, before before I went away, when I was at uni, I was a boardies and t-shirt kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I was living in the UK, it taught me I needed to dress a little a, a little better. Um, but what I realised too when I started working is that um, people, whether we like it or not, people take it more seriously oh, when sure. uh, you know when you present well. Yeah. And uh, until you are a Richard Branson of this world, mm. uh, unfortunately, you've got to uh, you've got to look <laughs> the part. So uh, you know, people expect when uh, when you turn up mm. that. Uh, uh, that you that you look like you know what you're talking about. Well, you're a very suave chap. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> well, look, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate your time today. Before we wrap it up, is there anything I didn't ask or any final comments? No, but make? this wasn't a paid endorsement. I'll no, tell you that. definitely not. <laughs> okay, good on you. Well, have a great afternoon. Thanks, mate. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Arate Podcast with Richard Tricks. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.